0: Please pronounce your name correctly for me.
1: Pilar Vehi.
0: And where are you from?
1: I am from Manhasset, which is a town on Long Island in Nassau County.
0: All right, and, but and you still live in the New York area, yes?
1: I live in Manhattan, so I live downtown, Lower East Side.
0: I don't know what the Lower East Side means. Is that is that like the what kind of? I know they each have their own personalities. What does that neighborhood have?
1: It's a little gritty little rough around the edges, has a lot of new small businesses, small restaurants. It's south of the East Village, so.
0: I love how you said that, as though I know what this East Village means, yeah.
1: I thought everybody knew where the East Village was.
0: I'm guessing East.
1: So the East Village is 14th Street to Houston on the East Side, so Alphabet City. Okay. Where all the galleries were in the 80s. Tompkins Square Park.
0: Okay. I have not been to New York in decades, so I don't have a great recollection.
1: Well, it's actually nice to hear because as a New Yorker, you basically think New York is the world and that everybody's thinking about New York. And so it's nice to hear that you're not thinking about it because it's nice to have other perspectives.
0: (laughs) We're all like that. Everywhere we live, we think everybody's thinking about us. I know.
1: Yeah, so I live on the Lower East Side.
0: Lovely. All right. Now you're a—I'm not sure what the right terminology—private art advisor. What, like, give me like an overview of your, what your current position is.
1: I am an art advisor. You can also call me an art consultant. Private, because maybe I work for myself.
0: Maybe like you're not sure, or
1: I do work for myself. But I think private is one of those titles that gets tossed in there for a little bit of formality. So art advisor, art consultant, something like that is fine.
0: Okay. I love it. I'm all about them. Like I love, I'm a practicing artist myself. I'm also a professor. And so I'm also, I'm interested from the artist's perspective, but also from sort of the student's perspective kind of thing of like, what does an art advisor do technically? I guess I'm not asking like all art advisors. Obviously I'm asking what do you do?
1: I like how you asked me that as if there's like some vibe going on out there that we don't do anything as art advisors. You're like what do you actually
0: do? Sorry, I did not mean to imply that. I I meant it as in like give me like a technical uh, breakdown of the role of an art advisor.
1: So the role of the art advisor is to Educate and expose the client, the collector, to a wide variety of work, help educate their eye, help them understand the market, and really find art that connects with what their interests are. So I think of myself as, and I would love to find another terminology for this because this is like a war reference, I think, but I think of myself as boots on the ground. So, I'm always in and out of artists' studios, galleries, museums, having conversations with people. And then, when clients come to me looking for something specific or looking to be educated, I can help them based on what their interests are. Whether it's just supporting, like one client wants to support an Israeli artist living in the United States, or whether it's just, I don't know what I want, I want. I want to see what you think is good. So everybody has a different desire of what they want out of the art collecting experience. And then art advisors are generally there to support artists that they think are making relevant work.
0: Well, that's one of the things that I always wondered about art advisors. Like, so you you have a sort of a stable of artists that I'm sure that you like, admire, respect, and sort of wish that you could sort of give more sales to and more opportunities to but is it like would you do you sell any artwork that somebody needs so if somebody comes and says hey I want to Damien Hurst," and you don't personally know Damien Hurst, would you you know deal with that kind of stuff or is it only you? do you only sort of deal in people and artists that you interact with
1: I will help you find whatever you want if you want to invest in samurai swords and you need that like that's the old-fashioned art advisory type thing like you really cultivate the collector's desire so my client is the collector so whatever the collector is interested in I will help that in terms of a stable of artists I'm completely independent I don't have a stable of art. I'm not like a gallery where I have 12 artists that I need to suggest to clients. It's more like the client and I will have a relationship and where we are constantly talking about art and going to see art. And I'm trying to make art an accessible part of their everyday life where they have, where they can achieve a comfort level So that when they walk into a gallery and they're looking at something, they can appreciate it on a different level than a year ago or two years ago, you know, when you start thinking about the work. So, in general, my clients are busy professional people with families and jobs and, you know, they've saved some money or bought a new apartment or whatever it might be and they want to support artists and put something on their wall that's a little bit more than a poster
0: as we all should yes but now when okay so when a collector comes to you what are their I mean the the most common sort of idiom about collecting is like either you collect because you love it or you collect for investment but is that the only reasons that people choose art
1: no I mean I think and I hate to say this, but I do think that most people just have the practical issue of a blank wall and they would like to put a piece of art on resonates with them. They really don't know where to go. Like there's thousands of galleries alone in New York City. You know, they're embarrassed because they have lived in New York for 20 years and haven't really done the gallery scene, but there's that curiosity that I think most intellectual people have where they do want to engage, they just don't know how to do it. So that's where an art advisor can come in and help. And if you have a good relationship with somebody and you kind of see the art world eye to eye, I think it can be a really nice long-term kind of friendship and add... A dimension to your life that is kind of irreplaceable. So I always say the art galleries are free. You can go there whenever you want, Tuesday to Saturday, usually. <laughs> bring your kids, bring your dog, make a day out of it, see one gallery per week, but make it part of your life. And that's how your eye will grow. That's how you'll start to appreciate more things. And that's where you get your confidence in collecting. So I help people like get their bearings in the art world. And I suggest the shows and yeah.
0: It's difficult to figure out what you like. Uh, I used to run like a sculpture program, public sculpture program. And one of the big goals was to like, educate the public on not just what do they like, but what they don't like. So we would potentially put out sculptures, sort of test their bounds and then hear their reactions kind of things. And sometimes people like to be pushed, but sometimes people don't like to be pushed. They want something comfortable.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think everybody has their concept of what art is to them. And so a lot of times that's a painting. And so a lot of collectors will come and they'll say, oh, I'm open to everything, you know. But then when it comes down to it, the first thing that they really do want is a painting, which I understand. And, you know, the old Renaissance concept of art, (laughs) painting is king. But once we have that, like once they've collected a painting, then maybe they can explore other things. But I think people in terms of what you were saying about wanting to be pushed. I think they generally do want to be pushed, but then there's that also push-pull of visual art in terms of what kind of repulses you might also be something you should revisit. But do you want to live with that is another question on top of that. So it's a whole conversation that people generally, unless you're looking at art all the time, You don't have the confidence to know the answers to those questions for yourself.
0: Indeed, I know. I mean, it's a lot of people say they're intimidated to go into even museums, which are really intended for that purpose, but yet they're somehow coming off as saying they're intimidated. And then, of course, galleries. Even I, who've been going to galleries for decades, I'm still intimidated to go into some galleries for sure. So I get it.
1: Like, what gallery are you intimidated by? Mary Boone. Well, she doesn't have a gallery.
0: Oh, well, last time I was in New York, she had a gallery. (laughs) And I remember sitting outside Mary Boone and I smoked like three cigarettes before going in because I was like, oh my God, oh my God, it's Mary Boone.
1: I think nobody should feel intimidated about going into a gallery. That's really sad. I mean, most of the people who work out front are the junior staff and generally they're just really nice and overworked and probably annoyed because people are always asking them if they can use the bathroom and things like that.
0: (laughs) I know. I I worked that job for a couple years. Where did you work? In San Francisco at a gallery that is now defunct. So yeah. But okay. So when it comes to collecting, so when your collectors come to you, so like, how do you work with them? How do you approach the whole dynamic of even figuring out what they want? Because I would imagine so you know a good percentage of your people probably come going I don't know what I want. And so that's really a hard thing to like take the entire world of art and try to whittle down so like how do you figure out what they would are interested in, what they're comfortable with, you know, as far as subject matters, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
1: I usually start by having a conversation with them in their home. And if you're in somebody's home, that gives you a really good sense of how they live, just from their decor. Like, do they have a bunch of kids? Do they have a million dogs? Do they have horses? You know, what their interests are kind of just come out naturally. Do they play a musical instrument? You know, do they have antique cars? Where are they living? All these things kind of feed into it. And then depending on where the person is in price point, Like some people come to me and they say, look, I've collected on my own for years, but I'd like to kick this up to the next level. And I want somebody with experience to help me put a collection together that's significant. And that is a different conversation than somebody who says, I've never been into a gallery in my life and I want to start collecting. So For the new person who's never collected before, I start at a really low price point just to get them out, get them looking. I wouldn't even send them checklists or let them preview anything because I don't need somebody who's never been in a gallery telling me what they think is good, you know. So I'm like, let's just get out looking because as everybody knows, things look totally different on a JPEG, on a computer screen than they do in person. So let's not have too many conversations theoretically about art that you've never seen before. So we just get out, we go to galleries, and we just go from
0: there. Okay, wait, I want to go back. Low price point. When you're saying low price point, do you mean like a painter who's inexpensive or do you mean like maybe a mid-career, Printmaker or photographer, but so sort of like the based on the medium that it's being used?
1: Basically all of the above. So we will go and I will say, I'm gonna show you five relevant artists who are in your price point, who are, you know, the emerging category, and then I'll show you prints or photographs, things and additions that could be of a more mid-career category but will be similarly priced because they're works in editions, which are generally lower priced. And then I'll even, if it's next to a blue chip Chelsea gallery, we'll just pop in there and say like, this is the work of a mature artist and we'll have a discussion about the use of materials or why it's relevant or the importance of a rigorous practice. And so we'll really discuss what makes one work feel different from another And, you know, some clients surprise themselves because I feel like if you put an intelligent person in front of a a really good artwork, they generally rise to each other. So I feel like people in general know more about visual culture than they think that they do. I think art advisors are about educating people about the market, the whole scope of the market. But then also giving them the confidence to say, like, if you love this painting, you just love the painting, or if you love the sculpture or the tapestry or whatever it is, and just, like, go for it. Because you haven't loved anything else, and we're here, and you seem to like
0: I'm sure that happens. I mean, I'm an impulse buyer myself. I just fall in love with things. And I'm like, oh, my God, I have to have that, even though I have no idea where it's going to go in the home.
1: But that's the best way to collect, really
0: my family has a collection small collection mostly works on paper not even paintings but we have you know some nice pieces and i've been collecting over the years of course usually trading with other artists but i've built up um, enough of a collection between my entire family that we can make a small regional museum nice like my my family has enough artwork that we change the artwork throughout the house every season. So we have the spring artwork, summer artwork, winter artwork, and so on.
1: You're gonna have to send me pictures of that installation process and deinstallation process.
0: That would be me on a ladder. Is what that would be.
1: But where does it all go? Do you have an art storage area?
0: We have a a. It, they in in North Carolina they call it a furnished room over the garage a, a frog <laughs> and so it's an air conditioned climate controlled room that nobody actually lives in but and so we store all the excess up there when not being used cool yeah but the same thing with rugs. My mother has a fetish for rugs. So we have all kinds of Turkish and Persian rugs, and they ch- change those out every season as well. So, but Wow. I, I know we're the oddity in, in the culture. <laughs> Not everybody does that.
1: No, but I do love a good rehang. I think it's a fun way to refresh what your expectations are of your own collection. And yes, I do love a good rehang. But it's hard to convince people to do it because it's such a pain in the butt.
0: It is not a pain in the butt, especially if, like, what you do is, you like, we have, we have like, three major places that we hang things, at, pri- like, the primary sort of visual ones in the rooms, and we have one nail that stays there, and we basically have different art pieces that all are approximately the same size, just for different color palettes for different seasons, so we pretty much just, like, rehang it on the same nail. It's not rocket science.
1: Okay, well, that sounds really interesting. You could sell that concept you have the same size artwork it's like a lego you like crack out the hair and put on a new
0: no not the same size they're approximately like the the summer piece in the living room is a vertical and the winter piece is a horizontal but they we've done the wiring so that they hang on the same nail and get at the same proportion and space on the wall
1: Okay. You're going to have to document. Just send me pictures. I just need to see this. Summer, winter art. Wait, is there fall and spring as well? Uh,
0: Yes. Yeah. But my mother's an interior decorator. So, come on.
1: I think she might be an influencer.
0: Uh, Well, she's also 78 years old at this point. So...
1: She's definitely, she's influencing me and I haven't even seen a picture.
0: Well, at this point, because they're 78 years old, I apologize, mom and dad, if you listen to this, but th- they're not of the age that they can easily do this stuff and I'm not living near them. So they don't they don't do it as much as they used to, is what I'm saying.
1: Amazing. My mom is also 78 years old and she was constantly moving the furniture around in our house. She loves to move the furniture around and my husband when he we first were dating was like does this happen all the time she's like move. and i was like yeah she rearranges the furniture regularly and he was like so inspired by it he was like this is so odd i've never seen this before and i was like yeah this happens constantly <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's funny, like all the places I've ever lived, the the rooms don't have the opportunities for different arrangements. Like my our current apartment, our sofa would literally not fit anywhere else except the current place that it is. So we have no option for that.
1: Yeah, I'm not bothering to move my furniture around here.
0: I would do it. If my wife wasn't around, she hates it when the apartment's in disarray. So like, if I can't get it done between when she leaves to work and when she comes back from work, then I can't do it.
1: But you don't have like a winter couch position versus a summer couch position in the apartment.
0: I, I would if we had the space. <laughs> because well, for summer you want to be facing out the window for winter it's very dark here and gloomy so you don't want to be facing out the window because it just sort of exacerbates the gloominess so yeah I, I literally would do that if the option was there
1: well maybe it's you as the human are positioning yourself in summer towards the window and winter towards a lamp or something
0: <sighs> I wish I could buy I never I, I keep wondering whether I' I still don't believe those little like UV light things in the winter actually help, but I've heard people say they do. I don't know.
1: I don't know either. All I know is that when the sun doesn't shine, I'm very exhausted.
0: (laughs) See, I'm generally the opposite. When the sun is not shining, I'm like, oh God, it's such a great day to get other things done because it's not a beautiful day where I want to go out and get other things done in the sunshine. So I actually find myself to be very productive on overcast days and less productive on sunny days because on sunny days I want to go out and play. So back to artists and artists. Okay, collecting. So one thing that, that as a practicing artist I often wonder about, which I ask everybody about, and I'm always getting different answers, so I'm fascinated by your answer on this. How important is it to the collector or How important is it to you before you even propose a works to a collector?
1: Well, first of all, I would never propose an artwork to a collector that I hadn't seen myself. So the artwork needs to stand on its own. And then because the market is fickle and nobody wants to make a stupid investment or a bad choice, and let's face it, everybody has a price point above which they want to be making a smart investment. And that price point is different for everyone. So I wouldn't say that the artist statement particularly means anything to me, except provides me with a little bit of information about either. It's usually, it's not even an artist statement at that point, because I'm usually, if it's the CV, then I'm usually looking and because at a certain price point client wants to know that either academically or like academically through a museum or a fellowship or something like that that the artist is receiving attention or through the market that the artist is receiving attention those are two ways to kind of put the artist into context but it's not really relevant for emerging artists because or all artists because it doesn't matter how many prizes the artist won if you don't like the work. So it's really just about spotting an artist that clients might connect with or that you connect with and you think is doing interesting work and and has an interesting practice and then making that apparent to the collector. So if it's somebody who's a new collector... It's You don't have as much kind of research to provide. But if you are working with a mid-career or an established artist and the price points are higher, the client wants to hear if they're spending $100,000 on something that this is an artist who's going places, so to speak, or who has an established market. Galleries behind them, museum interest. So you want to have institutional interest, you want to have collector support, and you want to have gallery support. So you kind of look for that on the CV.
0: Okay, because I'm thinking about like my own CV. I'm like, okay, so where they, well, like, how? What's the hierarchy of the importance of stuff? So like, what would be the thing that would make you go, oh, okay, this person's doing. well
1: Do you want me to take a look at your CV? Should we work on that? Should we workshop it?
0: It's horrible. <laughs> But sure, I would gladly take the feedback.
1: I think, you know, you're looking. I don't necessarily care if the artist has gone to a great art school or anything like that.
0: Damn it. That's, that's my best point, that I went to good art schools. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck.
1: It's like anything else. I mean, it kind of puts the artist in context because you're like, oh, they went to Yale or oh, they went to RISD. Who did you study with?
0: I knew you were going to say Yale.
1: Well, that's what everybody is interested because Yale is very close to New York City. So
0: Everybody uses Yale as a reference. I got it. It's fine.
1: I have a nephew named Yale now.
0: That's actually kind of a cool name. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, uh, that, no, that's kind of a cool name. Yeah. However, they can never go to Yale. Like That would be weird.
1: No. Well, they're from Colorado.
0: No, they'll probably go to Stanford then.
1: Yeah, or maybe, you know, become a bike mechanic. I don't know.
0: Well, Colorado, they could do uh, marijuana out there. It's legal there, right?
1: <laughs> Always bringing it back to the marijuana.
0: Yale marijuana. Like, I mean, that's that's iconic. They, You know, it's not ripping off the college's name because it's the person's name. Like, they could pull that off.
1: I mean, he is eight months old, but I'll let his parents know that the branding is there.
0: Plenty of time. Branding's there, plenty of time to make a business plan.
1: But back to the art school thing, I think if the artist went to a school, it's just information to give you an idea of what type of artist they are. Because if they're going to one of these really kind of super selective MFA programs, that kind of gives you a sense of what their expectations are with their career, so to speak. Or if they're self-taught and they're like, wow, you want to look at my work? Like, oh, let me look under my bed. It's over here. Or things are, you know, all over the place. Or it's just a totally different experience. So I don't necessarily think that the CV is going. The artwork is, you're already 70% to it you want to buy the artwork and the cv is either going to you know push you that last bit or not i don't know
0: okay well i have a question within that though because i've spoken to a number of female artists and people that work in the arts industries and a lot of them have had like some gaps in their cvs because of having kids and they weren't able to do you know devote time to their artistic practice even I have a huge gap in my CV because I actually went to the United Arab Emirates and taught there for almost six years. And I was unable to sort of participate in as many exhibitions and other opportunities as I could because of the job obligations that were there. And I work figuratively and they were not so keen in a Muslim country on my figurative work. So, you know, so like there are different reasons why people have gaps in their careers. Is that, really as harmful as we all think it is
1: no nobody's looking at your cv oh okay you can make some stuff up too
0: that is lying i'm just kidding you could make small stuff up
1: i would never suggest that you lie on your cv i'm just saying that nobody's really eyeballing your cv that closely
0: you can make up stuff that's not confirmable nor deniable
1: I mean, I don't understand in what scenario people are worried about gaps in their CV. Like, they think they have a show up and somebody walks in. They're like, oh, fuck, she had kids and took off five years or something like that. Forget this. Like, why would anybody think that? If I saw that and somebody took off five years, I would actually like the work more. Be like, what happened? Where were they? But I don't think that anybody really... It's not like a corporate situation where you're like, oh, you were only at this job for one year, and then
0: what happened? It's good to hear. Like, It is a thing that people talk about, and it is a concern that people have about gaps in their CVs. I mean, to the point, I had a friend of mine in grad school that his, this is his career goal. I mean, it was sort of joking, but serious. He wanted to have an exhibition every year the rest of his life. Like, that was his goal, to, to literally be able to put a date of every single year on his CV so there was literally no gaps in his entire CV for, until his death.
1: I mean, couldn't he just be, like, Joe's apartment gallery show? and
0: Again, lying.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. You could have, I could put a show up in this closet right now and say, or he wants, like, significant gallery presence. <laughs>
0: He obviously would like to build his career to better significant presence, institutional presence, this kind of stuff. Yes. But that was his goal.
1: I mean, you can have that goal, but you also have to have the hustle to go and show the work and talk to people and all of that.
0: Okay. Speaking of that, so because of the pandemic, I'm sure that you have not been able to get around to do as many studio visits and things like this in the past year, year and a half. Correct, not correct,
1: correct. It's picked up a little bit, but for the most part, it's yeah, pretty quiet.
0: well, but did you do virtual ones during that time? No, okay, well, because that was going to be my question was like, how do you feel about the difference between an in person versus a virtual studio visit? but I kind of already figured it out.
1: No, that's really not my vibe. <laughs> I don't want to interact with people virtually. I don't think people should buy. Art they haven't seen in person. I would never suggest they buy art they haven't seen in person. I would never buy art I haven't seen in person. And I don't think... I mean, I think all these platforms where people are buying art online are great. My assumption is that most of the people buying that art are familiar with the artist's work in some way. And they're not just buying it blind. So I think that definitely got... The art market through the pandemic is that there was this knowledge level about the artists that were being shown and people were able to anticipate shows coming up and look forward to buying those artworks. But for the most part, I did not go to galleries and I didn't go to studio visits during that time.
0: Good. It's kept you healthy. That's fine. Okay. Totally random thing popped in my head. When you see a piece in a gallery setting, do you expect it to already be framed? I'm thinking painting, I mean, because obviously like a piece of paper needs to be framed in some sort. So like, do most of your collectors, I guess the sort of thing is like, would, do they want to purchase a piece that's sort of all done and they can just literally throw a nail on the wall and hang it? Or do they want to buy just an unfinished sort of framed or unframed piece and then sort of choose a frame that's appropriate for their lifestyle kind of thing?
1: I don't think they really care about framing. Why is
0: that funny? Oh, because my teachers, they told us all these like lies. My God, I was lied to so much. And they they kept saying, oh, you should always finish off your your presentation. And put it, when you put it in a gallery, it should be completed and framed so that if somebody were to purchase it, they literally can take it home and put a nail on the wall and put it up because most consumers are not very savvy in how to choose a good frame. So the artist should sort of make that decision for them.
1: Right. And, you know, that's true. I mean, that is true. But if you're going in to see a drawing show and the drawings are tacked on the wall, that's totally fine. What? Yeah.
0: You're fine with that?
1: I'm absolutely fine with that because the gallery doesn't have the overhead to spend hundreds, if not a thousand dollars on a frame for, you know, 50 artworks. So I'd rather have the art shown than have one art that's framed, one art piece that's framed. When the client buys a the work, they can either frame it to the artist specifications or they can go to IKEA and get a frame. I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. I would always recommend that they frame something in an archival way to extend the artwork. We're talking works on paper. In general, always go with the artist's recommendation. I think there's some wiggle room there based on what you have in your apartment, house whatever. And then if it's a painting, I don't necessarily think you need a frame, but sometimes just it's in a quarter and you have kids and scooters or whatever, and you want to just protect the edge. I also think you can just, most of the time I just say, you just take it home, we'll install it. And if you live with it and feel like it needs a frame, we can have one built for the piece. But I don't think unless... Like, it's an artist-made frame, and the artist feels like the frame is part of the feast. Like, Kelty Ferris had some really beautiful paintings at the Independent here in New York, and they have started making frames that are colored in a way that it's part of the artwork. So it's not a presentation aspect. It is part of the painting itself. So that is a different story.
0: Well, because I just recently was in Paris and I was seeing all these amazing frames and all these old paintings that were chosen by an intentional, you know, that the artist wanted this to elevate the piece in some way. That sort of craftsmanship and art form, sadly, has been lost. But still, I'm sort of wondering still these days if that's an important element.
1: It's not lost. You can go to any number of framers and have them build you the Syrah frame. Or I've even had clients have a portrait that they did like a slight guilting to the frame just because the decor and the colors and the piece. And that's what they wanted. They really wanted that, you know, presentation. I think you can have fun with frames. The only thing is framing is really expensive. So that is kind of the big downer of framing is that you buy the piece and you're like, oh, great. I got this like inexpensive work on paper. And then you're like, oh, great. Now I have to frame it for basically the same cost.
0: If you're lucky.
1: As it was to buy the work. So I think I like, especially for if you're buying an inexpensive drawing, you just have to suck it up. But if you're buying like a $30,000 artwork, that's pretty big. it's nice. When it's already framed or the frame is included in the price of the artwork.
0: For $30,000, I would expect it to at least have some protective thing around it.
1: Only if it's a work on paper.
0: Certainly if it's work on paper for 30000
1: Or a photograph or something. But I think in general, frames for contemporary work is kind of meant, they always say, disappear. You know, you want the frame to disappear.
0: I know, and it, when I was in school, it was all about, I was a photography major, so like it was all about white mats, black frames, and of course now the trend is more towards white frames to make it, like you say, disappear, which I kind of appreciate in many ways. I think it's a, it's a nice thing, it's very contemporary, allows the artwork to be more prominent versus the frame.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've seen all the trends. Well,
0: what other trends have I missed? I knew the black frame, white frame.
1: Well, what you didn't know is that you didn't know the white rub. The white rub frame is like if you took white paint and you just rubbed it on the wood. So it just comes up. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so you still have the wood grain visible, but it's like whitewashing it, yes.
1: Right, that's like super, super 90s. I'm surprised you didn't bring it up.
0: Well, those are like aspen woods that are light woods already that you then sort of whitewash them. Yes, I know this, this trend. I actually had some of those frames as well.
1: But <laughs> the black ones, you did black or whitewashed them.
0: I did black. I did no. I did some of the aspens, the the light, pale woods. I did those at one point, and then I did them in around twenty ten. That was about when I did those. Was I late? Yeah. Okay. You missed that. I swear to God. I mean, one of the things about being in the arts world is you never know if you're ahead of the trend or behind the trend. You just do something, and you think you're on trend, and most of the times you're not. <laughs> I guess most of the times I should say, I'm not. Maybe other people are.
1: I don't know that artists generally know too much about.
0: I resent that.
1: Framing trends. Framing trends. How about
0: that? Fine. I'll give you trends. But I also do woodworking. So I actually build my own frame. So like I'm try to. Yeah, I don't. You're right. I don't keep up with trends, <laughs> but I do know about a good frame. I think. I hope. But anyways, all right. So let's move back to something else that you brought up, which was about how to build a collection. Okay, so like, so let's say from a collector's perspective and of course from yours because you're going to help to guide them through this process. My experiences are traditionally people have collections that say, ah, oh, I collect. Twentieth century printmaking or nineteenth century French art or you know paintings or you know, they're very sort of precise like this. Is this how people are still collecting, or is there some sort of different ways of collecting these days?
1: No, people are not collecting that way. At least the ones that I work with are not collecting that way.
0: Great. Okay. Please educate me. How are people collecting then?
1: Except for the Cause people, they're focused on cause.
0: I wait, I'm sorry, I don't know what that means.
1: Cause, you don't know the artist cause, K A W S.
0: Oh, yes, okay. I thought you meant like cause, like C A U S E. I'm like, no, like environmental art, like, but you mean okay, cause, got it. The artist,
1: if people are collecting his work, they're very focused on him and his kind of genre.
0: Ooh ouvre <laughs> right I like using big words it makes me sound more intelligent.
1: You sounded really smart when you said that. Thank you. But I would say in general, people want to have permission to not curate their collection to just buy what they like. So sometimes if the person has a really big collection, I'll say, oh I've noticed that you're focusing on X, Y or Z why don't we have like a a mini focus inside the collection of this? And that way I can always send you if I see, you know, whatever, I'll always send it to you. And that changes dependent on who they are. So some collectors have like a collection within the collection of like sort of a focus, but I would say for the most part that some people are like, I want to collect contemporary realism or I want to collect art by women or, you know, it's a little bit more broad.
0: That's very broad. Just like things like art by women. I mean, that's a lot.
1: Yes, but it's nice to support women artists.
0: A hundred percent.
1: Or support whatever group of artists is of interest to you or support artists of color or... So I think there is definitely that aspect of it. But I always say, you know what, I will be sure to show you artists from Alabama or whatever it is you're interested in. But also like, let's leave a lot of room for chance because you are going to see things that you wouldn't have expected to see. And you want to give yourself permission to focus on what you really love and not these artificial rules that you created.
0: Well, and that's sort of one of the things that, but that I keep thinking about is, is, like, okay, they are sort of artificial rules because I know a lot of people that have collections, and then they always have these like other pieces, and they're like, well, this isn't really part of the collection, but I like the piece kind of thing, like so they just have these outlier pieces that are in their homes. But what I find interesting is like, how is that going to affect sort of the legacy of these these collections as they go on? Because like in the past, well, I'm not even saying in the past. Like my parents, their collection, they're getting old and at a certain point we're going to have to do something with that collection because I can't fit their whole collection into my house. And we were talking to a museum and they were saying like, oh, is what's your collection? So like, basically a museum wasn't interested in the collection because it was too eclectic and not focused enough. And so it seems like a museum might not be willing to take on some responsibility of a collection if it's too eclectic. So there does need to be some balance on that, yes?
1: I don't think that you should have an expectation that your artwork is going to go into a museum unless you have pre-arranged that. I don't think that people are, or the, at least the collectors that I'm working with, they're not thinking super long-term about their legacy. They're thinking about investing their money in an artist that they think is relevant, that they think is doing interesting work. and wanting to enjoy living around it. They're not really in it for long term investment purposes, but you know, of course, everyone would like their artistic choices validated by the market.
0: <laughs> it's true. I mean, you do want that sense of validation. You don't necessarily need like, you know, a thousand percent return on your investment kind of thing. But you want, you want to know that the person ended up doing something with their life because we have plenty of pieces even in my household where we're like yeah we think the person stopped making art but we still love this piece
1: but that's okay too i mean there are a lot of reasons why people would kind of tap out of the art world so you have to respect that too
0: you do indeed are there any trends that you're aware of that are going on right now obviously i'm not up on them so trends trends in collecting like, I mean, I, I'm starting to, like, the things I'm thinking about are, like, are people collecting more, um, like you were talking about, like, feminism or minority-based kind of things. Like, are they focusing more towards that kind of stuff? Are they focusing, are people buying more blue chips? Or are they going more for the up-and-comings? Like, what's the the direction that more people seem to be leaning these days?
1: Well, I think with the... Racial reckoning that's going on in the United States—that people are really aware of underserved populations, minorities, and kind of getting away from the traditional gallery. Yeah, he's pointing at his head. Yeah.
0: Yes, the the white male American European. Yes, I know. I understand.
1: You know, there are certain galleries who have always made it part of their program. To be inclusive, I'm thinking of like a Sycama Jenkins, but then there are plenty of, that's more of a blue chip gallery or mid-career. But I would say from an art advisor's perspective, I'm interested in supporting women gallerists. I'm interested in talking to them and understanding their perspective. I'm interested in supporting gallerists of color and Getting to know their practices better, their point of view better, because that's something that hasn't necessarily been represented that well in the art world. So I think my collectors are also interested in that, although some of them wouldn't come out and say it. But I feel like that's a little extra perspective that I can put in for them. And because I'm always out and looking, I can kind of tailor my eye towards being more inclusive towards inclusivity on a lot of levels, towards gallerists whose programs spotlight inclusivity in some way and make that part of the conversation about artwork as well. Because really at, at the best form, the art is reflecting our culture. And so that's really relevant to people to see that reflected back at them in unexpected and interesting ways.
0: Okay, I want to ask you like really stupid questions, and you don't have to answer these if you don't want to. What's the like the one piece that you b- helped to f- broker? Is it broke? Would it be broker a, d- a deal? I guess would that be a good right break- term?
1: <laughs> acquire,
0: acquire.
1: People say acquire. They also say place, or I've placed that work or whatever. My husband thinks that's like the most pretentious of all.
0: That's funny. I would have said acquire was far more pretentious than place. Isn't acquire a French word?
1: I believe it's English. <laughs> I actually don't know.
0: Really? Okay. Shows my skills in language. What's the most like interesting or unique or expensive or surprising thing that you have ever helped a collector acquire?
1: I mean, on my own or working for somebody else? I don't care. When I was the assistant to wonderful old-fashioned art advisor at my last year there. He helped the client buy a Damien Hirst piece that was in formaldehyde, and we had to import it to United States. So that was exciting.
0: Yeah, those aren't cheap.
1: And it also wasn't formaldehyde. There is actually no formaldehyde in those. He just put it in the medium description because of the Not the shock value, but because it is kind of this poisonous and frightening material.
0: I swear I smelled formaldehyde when I saw one of them in in real life.
1: Try smelling it again.
0: It's possible. Yeah, it's possible they just did it for the length of the exhibition and then he took it out of formaldehyde. (laughs) Artists have done stranger things. Yes. What was it? It was a shark, a sheep. What was it? Shark. Shark. Good. Love it. All right. Any topics you want to talk about?
1: I mean, in terms of inclusivity in the art world and talking about collecting, I really think what we didn't haven't talked about yet is like the point of view of the art advisor, which I think there's like certain art advisors that only want to work with really like blue chip collectors who are collecting at a high level. And I would say that I am very inclusive. I would like to work with everybody. If you have $500 that you want to spend, I would love to help you. There are artists out there who could really use that $500. And I feel as though the art world really is for everyone at this point, young and old. If you have an extra hour or two in your weekly schedule, there's a great app called Seesaw. You can download it. It will tell you You can, it has a nearby gallery feature and you can just like click on it and you could be having lunch with your family and say, oh, there's a nearby gallery, go around the corner.
0: Wait, how do you spell it? S-E-E-S-A-W? Yeah. Okay.
1: It might be kind of, it's like New York, Paris, London. I'm not sure it's made it to Prague. No offense to Prague.
0: I will look it up after we're done.
1: I think it's really a great resource. I think it is paid too, so it, it's not super comprehensive, but it's it'll get you 75% of the way to seeing more art. So I really do feel like art is for everyone. I would love my whole goal is to like get people out, get people looking, and really destigmatize it because I think what most people see is either when artists are behaving badly collectors are behaving badly, auction houses that are behaving badly, or when something sells for a super high price. And then art is this luxury commodity. And that's really not what the entire art world is about. It's full of a lot of really optimistic and positive people who are trying to support artists or artists who are trying to simply have people enjoy or see the work in some way or another. So... I really do want to democratize and make fun for people. And like like you're an artist, you were intimidated to go into Mary Boone. So that's a horrible situation for our culture.
0: I was young. I mean, I was probably 21 years old.
1: You were young? Yeah. Oh, okay.
0: We've all been young.
1: <laughs> Once. I was on a school trip with one of my kids and there was another... Parent on the trip, and we went to the Whitney. This was maybe four or five years ago. And I could tell she just felt so uncomfortable because she had never been to the Whitney before.
0: The new Whitney or the old Whitney?
1: It was the new Whitney.
0: It's a beautiful building.
1: But this is a lifelong New Yorker, you know, not a person of means, not a person who likely.
0: Well, wait, okay, just to be relative on that, if you can afford to live in New York, you kind of are a person of means in comparison to a lot of the world, just to be clear.
1: I mean, I don't know what the percentage of people living in New York under the poverty line is, but it's really high. I'm going to say like 30, 40%.
0: Well, yes. I mean, you need waiters and delivery people and all that kind of stuff. So I get, okay, okay, that's fine. I'll give you that. All right, go on.
1: So what I'm saying is, there I was at the museum. I could see this woman was like visibly uncomfortable. And when we got into the museum, she kind of had like a breakdown because she saw a nude painting. And she was really offended by that. And it kind of broke my heart because she lives half a mile away from these places and she has no connection to them you know so like there's this whole group of people who feel no connection to the art world and that sucks and i think that's wrong
0: moralist i don't know if it's morally or ethically but like one of those i agree with that like everybody should have the opportunity to engage in the arts now the fact that she was offended by a nude that i find even more unfortunate in so many ways
1: yeah it was sad i mean i but I think the nude, it didn't matter what the painting really was. It was just that she felt so uncomfortable in the space.
0: That's interesting because like, I have no discomfort in, gal- in, in museum spaces at all. But of course, again...
1: But we're talking about a woman of color, not a woman of means, and she didn't grow up thinking that this was something that was part of her life. So to go into the space, she was already uncomfortable So I have tried to work with like the school community to do like gallery walks in the East Village and things like that, because there are all these artists who are reflecting what is her point of view back at the collector base. And I think it would be really interesting for her or somebody like her or, and I say this like with a grain of salt, because I don't think the art world needs another kind of like white woman telling people what to see. But I do feel like there's a lot more than just nude portraits in the Whitney.
0: Oh, there certainly are. The yeah, I, I could think of far more um, museums that have a larger quantity of what well, we could you know deem under that characteristic of inappropriate works in it for sure than the Whitney. Yeah. What do you think about figurative work these days? Contemporary figurative work.
1: I love figurative work. I think people, you know, when I was first working in the city, like when I came to the art world after college, that was like the late 90s, figurative was not cool. And everyone could not believe it when I told them that I thought Alex Katz was a good artist. They were like, no, he's so bad, so boring. But Alex Katz really kept figuration alive for the longest time. And, you know, he's come around to be held up really high. I don't think people in the art world generally think, like artists just make work and then the market either turns towards figuration or against figuration or towards something else or against something else. But I think artists are just working in their studios and, you know, you connect with what you connect with. So whatever it is you're making, I'm either connect with it or not, I guess.
0: I'm always fascinated by it. I've always worked reasonably figurative in my career, and, and I've noticed the trends of when it goes in and out of favor. And I feel like 2021, it's probably a smidge out of favor at this point. I think it was a little bit in favor maybe two years ago.
1: No, it's it's pretty much in favor right now.
0: Oh, it is. Oh, great. Okay.
1: I mean, it's kind of people, it's overly saturated. But yeah, there's like Lou Fratino or Salomon Tor. I don't know if you would consider Kathy Bradford figurative painter, but she's sort of figurative.
0: Well, I think the whole figurative stuff has become more popular because of Instagram.
1: I think when the figuration is placing certain groups of people in artwork that might not have received any attention in those places before, then I think it's, it gets a lot more attention and I think it rightfully should. But I think there's also some pushback like on the figuration. like Why is this figuration relevant? It just looks to me like regular old figuration. And so you're like, all right, well, I liked it. Like, is Isn't that enough?
0: Yeah, there is that. But I mean, yeah, the, I, I, I keep looking for people to push it farther. And there are some magnificent artists out there these days that are doing some really great things with figurative. But that's just a me thing. Anyways.
1: But who do you like?
0: oh don't ask me names i'm so bad with names i could show you pictures but i'm that bad with names but mostly because i just know their instagram profile names <laughs> no i'm still a am still a photographer at heart so i still have you know my great loves of like the joel peter witkins the the doug and mark mike Starns. um yeah, I, I'm still sort of hung up on the older generation. Still, probably Sally Mann, your Jock Sturges, like these these kinds of gang. Like those are still my sort of go tos. Vic Muniz, I love a lot. Um, yeah, those are mine. Off the top of my head, I'm I'm I'm, I'm visually going through my bookcase, like where what a, books do I have? Yeah,
1: <laughs> those are all great artists.
0: Yeah. I know and I want all of them on the podcast at some point. So, before we wrap up, <laughs> one one thing okay, this is I'm going to show you a little bit of my ignorance on this whole thing. There are lots of things I understand in the arts world. One thing I don't understand is the art advisory thing. So, what's the business model? Cuz like you said like you're happy to help somebody that's buying a $500 piece all the way up to $500,000 piece. So, like how do I guess I'm not asking all art advisors, but how do you do it? So like, is it a percentage of whatever somebody buys or do an hourly rate for the amount of time you put in or like, what's the the business model? Because I would imagine if I'm sitting here listening to this podcast, I'm like, oh my God, I'd love to hire her, but I don't understand how I'm going to pay her.
1: So it's a percentage of the asking price before discount. And it's 15% for private individuals. I try to make that affordable because if you're buying something for $500, it's pretty nominal, 15%. And I have to tell you that it's much harder to find artwork that is going to connect with somebody at the $500 level than it is at the $15,000 level. So thank you galleries for that. So I am independent. The client is my client. So I pass all the discounts along from the galleries. So if I'm able to get between ten and twenty percent discount, I pass that along to the client, which basically offsets my fee. And then discounts on framing, delivery, installation. I manage that whole process, and I will give all my trade discounts to the client. So it's a full service, no matter what price point.
0: Okay, because I like. I- but so you could work theoretically work with somebody and they end up buying nothing and then you earn nothing.
1: I have a minimum fee and that is a retainer that gets deducted from your first purchase.
0: Very smart because I imagine there are a lot of people that do that.
1: It keeps my anger management in check if it's taking too long. At least I say, well, at least they paid my retainer and I don't have anything to get angry about because I, you know, and a lot of the times it's like clients get busy and they can't go to galleries and things like this but i feel like if they put some money into it (laughs) then that motivates them to get their money's worth so to speak out of the relationship
0: i totally get it yeah all right last little thing would be do you have any advice for potential art collectors
1: just start going to more galleries
0: easy enough all right
1: (laughs) no (laughs) start going to galleries I always say become a member of all your local museums, because if you're a member, then you get the emails and then they remind you to go to all the shows. So you don't have to look into whatever website you go to to find out what's cool in your area. Whenever you travel, do museum stuff or check out the local art scene. The great thing about galleries is they're free. Museums Usually aren't, depending on where you go. But in D.C., they are.
0: Absolutely. I grew up with the Smithsonian. Everything was free. It was magnificent.
1: Take your kids. Make it a family thing. When my kids were little, I always just say, we'll go for half an hour. Like, whatever museum. You just do a pop-in. So you see, like, two things, and then you leave. And now my kids, like, they refuse to go to certain museums in New York. But they do like the Met. So that works.
0: Everybody loves the Met. Do they still have that that, that turquoise hippo as like a, a thing? Yes. They still do that? I
1: forgot that yeah, thing's oh, name, but yeah, that's still a thing.
0: So did I. I just was at the, the Louvre and they had the turquoise hippo there. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've never seen this outside the Met.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's like the kid mascot.
0: Yes, I know. There was a whole like book series and everything with him. I remember this very clearly from my childhood.
1: Yeah, they tried to make it really cool, but it was... I didn't understand it. I still don't really understand it.
0: No, it was never cool, but it was a thing.
1: It was, yeah, it was a thing. Yeah, I would say if you want to start collecting, just know that the art world is there for you, and you just have to get out and start looking, and, you know, it's best to, if you like something, and you're in a gallery, you can always say, can I see the price list? And if you... If it's in your price point, great. If it's not, you can say, oh, do they have less expensive work? Or do you have anything in this price range? In general, dealers are happy to work with anybody. And when I work with people, I always say, you know, when we start working at a super low price point in terms of the art market, which is not a super low price point in terms of the rest of the world. But if we're talking about a couple thousand dollars... I always say, I'm not working with you for your first purchase. I'm working with you for your last purchase. So we try to build a conversation about art and about collecting from early on to the later. So as the client gets more mature, we move forward together. So it's a long-term relationship, not a short-term, I'm hoping at least.
0: We're all hoping that, yes. All right. This has been great. Thank you very much for taking the time.
1: Thanks for talking with me. It was a fun conversation.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you're learning a lot from this podcast. I have learned so many things that I did wrong in my career and so many things that I need to be focusing on moving forward in my career. I hope this podcast has inspired you and assisted you in being more successful in your creative endeavors. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would also be greatly appreciated. I'd like to thank BG Racks or Buju Racks. We'll go with BG Racks for their five-star ratings. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by Fifty Fourteen. The audio was edited by Jakub Czerny, and the music was created by my childhood friend, Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene in Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.